Now, Matt, so we ought to have something. Good, good, good. good. So good to see you guys today. Uh, the devil told me that it's a holiday weekend. It's only going to be me and Heather and maybe a few more here. And Dad Gump, y'all didn't prove him to be a liar again, huh? Yeah, he lies like that all the time. Anyway, here we go. Uh, Ruth chapter number 3 is where we are. You know we have been looking at the book of Ruth consistently for the past several weeks and we're finding ourselves today in chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. Right up in the front of the Bible, right behind Judges, just before Kings, you'll find tucked away the little book of Ruth, only occupying two or three pages probably in print. Got a big message here in this book. So let's find our place, verse number 1. And I'm going to read this entire chapter. I'll shorten what I have to say in order for us to lengthen our passage. So here we go. Ruth chapter 3, verse number 1. The Bible says, Then Naomi, and, uh, then Naomi her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, speaking to Ruth, that is, Shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now was not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he went as barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether rich or poor. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it's true, I am a close relative. However, there's a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will not redeem you good, let him, or if he will redeem you good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as Yahweh lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came down to the threshing floor. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. 
For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Well, you know the story of our two heroines. They came back to Bethlehem from the land of Moab where they were both widowed. So they come back at the very bottom of the socioeconomic structure in the culture of ancient Israel. And Ruth is reduced to having, having to scavenge in a field after the harvesters have already picked the grain just in order to make a living. But we see throughout this entire story over and over there's an underlying theme of the hesed or the grace of God. Because by the grace of God she just happened to glean in the field of Boaz who was a close relative of her deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. So she finds favor in his sight and she gleans in his fields through the end of the harvest. Now, we come to chapter number 3 and we see that something begins to take place. And here in chapter number 3, we are faced with a question that many of you are faced with over and over again in our walk with the Lord. Here's the question that seems to rise naturally out of, this, out of this chapter. The question is, what is God's part and what is my part in the ultimate pursuit of His will for my life? Because these two girls understood and they could see what it was that God was doing by guiding them to this man who just happens to be a close relative of Elimelech. Now the significance of that is very important. How many of you are familiar with a kinsman redeemer and what his responsibility is as prescribed in the law? Leviticus chapter 27, Numbers and especially Deuteronomy chapter number 25 talk about the responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. You see, it worked like this. If you had a brother, uh, he was your closest relative, and you fell on hard times and you sold your portion of the land that you inherited from your mom and dad, that inheritance is so important, even sacred to the ancient Israelites, until it was the responsibility of your brother to go and buy that land back in order to keep it in the family because he is the kinsman redeemer. Other things, if, if you were working in the field and somebody's ox got away and came and gored you and killed you, it was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to be a blood avenger upon the person responsible for your death. That's why there were cities of refuge throughout ancient Israel where for accidents, if you kill somebody, you had to run to one of those cities of refuge before the kinsman redeemer found you and exterminated you. Another... Another responsibility of the kinsman redeemer was this. If you had a brother and he was married, but he died before he had children, because you see your legacy, what you leave, i.e. inheritance and family, is of ultimate importance in ancient Israel. That's why the Bible speaks sometimes of the ultimate curse as being cut off. If you read your Old Testament, you'll pick up on that terminology. Being cut off means you're gone, your family line ends, you are basically left without legacy, without any memory of your existence two or three generations down. That was the ultimate punishment from Yahweh. 
So it's the kinsman redeemer's job to come in and take sister-in-law as wife, marry her, and have children in order that the family line continues. So these two ladies recognize, and you'll see this terminology over and over again, for he is a close relative, or he is our kinsman redeemer. So they recognize that God has sovereignly orchestrated their lives, putting them here, and now they are almost under the wing of this kinsman redeemer. They see God's plan unfolding. There's only one problem. It seems that Boaz doesn't see the plan unfolding. And you see, Boaz is not making any moves. So in typical fashion, the man is lagging behind in his understanding... And Naomi says, now, we got to do something here. And we got to get this plan of God set in motion. So the question is, how do you know what your responsibility is in the ultimate will of God? And how do you know what His responsibility is? In other words, what does God expect me to do? And what are some things that only God can do? Man, it's a very perplexing question and we struggle with this most all the days of our lives. You see, on one hand, we go to one extreme and we try to be manipulative. And we try to do everything ourselves. On the other hand, if we do nothing at all and we just wait on God to do everything, then we become lazy and we're not responsible and it seems that it doesn't come to fruition that way either. I mean, you've heard it said that God will do what you cannot do, but God will not do what you can do. And I think that's a pretty good litmus test to help us answer this question of, now, when should I just sit and wait on God? And when should I put feet to my prayers and begin to do something because I know this is the will of God and this is the plan of God that is to unfold in my life? That's where these ladies found themselves. So Naomi says, what are we going to do? I mean, they've been there gleaning and and, and they've been interacting. They know all these things. He is a, a noble man. She is a woman of excellence. But old Boaz is just not making any moves. So Naomi says, and it looks like she's trying to hatch a scheme. And if you look at this at face value, it almost looks as if this is a seductive move on the part of these two women and they're engaged in some uh, illicit scheme in order to trap Boaz. But wait a minute. That's not it at all. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take the contrary perspective. Now, I started to say, now how many of you read that and you thought, hmm, this looks a little shady. And I was going to get you to raise your hand and I was going to say, well, now I see what's in your heart because you naturally see with your eyes what's already in your heart. So now all of you repent. (laughs) But I had mercy and I I didn't do that even though I wanted to set you up. I said, and now it's 4th of July. Let me be patriotic and not hurt anybody. (laughs) So, So here we go. But I do want you to know that that's not the case and we'll look for evidence and we'll show, we'll see that as we get through this. So, here's my topic today. It's time. Meaning, it's time to do something. We know what God's plan is. We see the pathway that He's marked out. All of this that happened is not coincidence. It's not just circumstance. But yet we're hung right here. So it's time. It's time to do something. 
And I think that's where a lot of us find ourselves. We've been sitting and we've been waiting and we've kind of shirked our own responsibility under the spiritual guise of saying, no, God will take care of that in His time. But the Bible teaches there's a time for us to be responsible and begin to put shoe leather to our faith and begin to walk down this path that God has directed us down. So notice what the Bible says here as we look at this chapter about all of these things, about how do you know, and about when is it time, what do I do, when do I do it, how do I do it. Let's put it all together from Ruth chapter number 3. The Bible tells us in the very first place here that uh, in verses 1 through 5, as Naomi begins to flesh all of this out, and, and let, me just, let me just say this before I, before I reveal my hand, before you put it up there. Look at this, look at verses 1 through 5. And it looks like Naomi is saying to her daughter-in-law, Hey, you go take a bath. You put on some perfume. You get on you a, a good low-cut blouse and a high-cut skirt. And you ease down there after old Boaz is drunk and he's feeling good. And you seduce him and we've got him. How many of you thought that's what it sounded like? And it does. It face value, does it not? No, Jerry says, I ain't think, I don't know what I think, preacher. <laughs> Far from that. They were going down there to have a prayer meeting, wasn't they, Jerry? Because <laughs> that's what you would in that situation, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. Good answer, Jerry. He's ahead of me here, boy. <laughs> look at here. Yeah, it's time. It's time to get going, Heather says. Now, I want you to look at what her mother-in-law said to her in verse number 3. She said, wash yourself therefore and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes. That one phrase gives us insight into what she is telling her daughter-in-law it's time to do. I want you to see this. So take your Bibles and turn over just a book or two with me to the book of 2 Samuel and I want you to see this same formulaic expression used in the life of David and I think you'll be able to put together what's going on here. I mean, this is, a, this is a formula. It's pretty standard. Wash yourself, put on some perfume, anoint yourself, and change your clothes. All right, are you ready? 2 Samuel chapter number 12 and verse number 20. You'll know what's going on. Don't read it yet. Look at me. Don't get ahead of me. You'll know what's going on here because this is where David's son that was conceived between him and Bathsheba in an illicit relationship, dies. All right, now look at verse number 20. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. Do you see? Does that, does that formula sound familiar? We just heard the same formula, did we not, in Ruth? All right, now look at the context. So David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he came into the house of, of the Lord, in, uh, of Yahweh, in worship. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. So now, let's go back to Ruth. What is it time? What did Naomi tell her daughter-in-law it was time to do? And here's what she was saying. It's time to abandon debilitating grief. Grief. You see, David had just... Let's, let's look in the context where this formula is used where it's more clear what's going on. David had just lost a son, did he not? So he was in torment. He was grieving. 
But when this expression is used, wash, anoint, and change your clothes, here's what in effect it's saying. It's time to move on with your life. Yep, grief is a normal process. And it is a process. And take, look, look. We grieve when we lose somebody. But son, if you stick in grief, it will be debilitating. You will go nowhere. You will accomplish nothing. You will be a miserable individual. God didn't plan for us, especially as believers, for us to live under a dark cloud of grief when we lose somebody. As a matter of fact, I had Bo Durham read that passage this morning because here's what Paul said. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Friends, we've got hope. We've got more reason than David to get up, anoint ourselves, wash, and move on with life. As a matter of fact, we're not doing justice to the memory of our deceased loved one if we sit around and wax away in debilitating grief. So here's what Naomi was saying. It's time to get up and get on. Now, now, get this. Now you understand why Boaz was making no move. Because here's what grief, here's, here's what Ruth was portraying. You do know in those days that when a, when, a, when a lady was witted, there was widow's garb that they would put on. Do you remember that? They'd put on a certain type of dress and outfit, and they would be sad, and they would have all of these grief rituals that they would go through, And probably Ruth still had that mentality and was still wearing grieving widow clothes. So what did that communicate to Boaz? Tell you what it communicated to Boaz. She's not ready to move forward yet. So Boaz, being a noble man, didn't even bring up the subject. But now Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, basically in verses 1 through 5, All right, it's time for you to quit grieving. It's time for you to pull it together. It's time for you to get up in the name of Yahweh and move forward with His plan for your life. He didn't plan for you to sit around like you are dead because you are still alive and He wants to fulfill His plan, bring His hesed to the table in your life. Now let's get up and move on, girl. Huh? You know anybody like that that just can't get over it? Watch. We're going to show you how she got over it. How, how was she able to get up and move on after losing her husband? Well, I think the first thing the Scripture gives us indication of how she was able to do that is because she knew who she was. Follow me. Look in verse number 9. He said to her after he was startled when he woke up in the middle of the night, he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth. Now let's stop. Because just about every other time when she is identified in this book, she's identified in conjunction with somebody else. She's either Ruth, the, 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 the widow of Malon. She's either Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Or she's Ruth, the Moabitess. But when she answered right here, it gives us a clue that Ruth now understands her identity as a human being. And here's why some people can't get over the loss of a loved one. Follow me. It's because sometimes we are so enmeshed in the life of of, of somebody close to us until we get our identity from that person. Are you following me? 
And when that person is gone, all of a sudden you've lost your identity. Especially in the cases of husbands and wives. The Bible says the two shall become one, but hear me, you're still two individuals. You are still, you still have two distinct personalities. A lot of stuff becomes one, and there's a lot of mysterious stuff taking place there, but you are still a person. Huh? I mean, Karen is not primarily known as Jerry's wife. She's known as Karen, right? Jerry isn't primarily known as Karen's husband. He's still Jerry. I mean, if the two of you become one, then you not only need to change your names to make them not only your last names the same, but your first names as well, and you only need to have one social security number. You're two individuals. So when a person can't get over the loss of a significant other, it's normally indication that that relationship was unhealthy. And the two were completely getting their identity from one another. But here Ruth says, she don't say I'm Ruth, the widow of Malon. She doesn't identify herself that way anymore. She doesn't say I'm Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. She says, I am Ruth, and look what she adds. Your maid or your servant. Indication that now she knows who she is. And by golly, she's not identifying herself based on something that took place in the past. She's identifying herself by what's going on around her today and what her future holds. Now hear me. Too many believers today don't know who they are. Especially don't know who they are in Christ. Do you know that when you were born again, you were given a completely different identity? Am I right, Jamie Baker? You're a different person, are you not? Uh, Neil, Neil Anderson in his book, The Bondage Breaker, has a great exercise in there of teaching believers who you are in Christ. And let me, let me say this. When you're born again, you are no longer identified by what used to be. You're identified by who you are and what you will be. And man, if you read the New Testament and see the plan that God has for you and who you are going to be one day in Christ, I want to tell you, you'll get up and quit all this grieving. Huh? You know who you are. And man, you've got something to look forward to. You've got a reason to live. And you've got a reason to honor the memory of our, of our dead relatives and loved ones by living to the fullest of what God wants us to be for His glory and for their honor. Man, check it out. She knew who she was. She said, I am Ruth, your maid. What, what else did she know? How was she able to move and get up out of her debilitating grief that will just lock you down? And look, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a death. It can just be something traumatic that happened to you in childhood and you hadn't got over it yet. You haven't moved on. You're allowing that traumatic experience to define who you are as a person. And I'm telling you in the name of Jesus, that's not your identification. So reject it and know who you are in Christ Jesus. Could be anything. I mean, it could be anything. It could be loss of a job. It could be a, a friendship that breaks up. It could be anything. And here's what those things do. Those traumatic experiences, if we don't process them right and handle them biblically, here's what happens. You get locked down in that period in your life. You never move on. It's like a short chain tied to you and whatever that experience was. And no matter how far you want to go, how bad you want to go, you're tied to that traumatic experience. 
And in Jesus' name, cut the chain and let's move on. That's what Naomi was saying. She said, son, daughter, listen. I loved him as much as you. I gave birth to him. You were just married to him for ten years. But it's time to move on. Take off your grief garments. Take off the signs of widowhood. And let's get going down this road that God has us walking down. Check out, not only did she know who she was, but she knew God's Word. You see, this is what gave her clarity. She knew God's Word. That's why this word kinsman redeemer keeps coming up over and over and over in this passage because she knew God's Word. She knew, by golly, because of God's Word, she knew basically what God was doing in all of these circumstances and apparent coincidences in her life. So she knew who she was. She knew God's Word. And therefore she knew what should be done. Look at verse number 9. I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are, here we go again, a close relative. That's the word of God that she knew, and she knew what God's word prescribed for a close, close relative in this situation. But let's look at this other, let's look at this other uh, phrase in the middle. So spread your covering over your maid. Here's where folk with a dirty mind think she was saying, let me get in bed with you. That's not what she was saying. Let me show you right here within the context of Ruth. Look what it is that Boaz said himself. I think it's in, yeah, it's in verse number 12. Look, this is what he prayed for Ruth. May Yahweh reward your work and your wages be in full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now these two phrases are put together. They're linked grammatically. So here's what Ruth was telling him basically. She was basically saying, hey big boy, why don't you be the answer to your own prayer? Do you see that? He's saying, you've come to be covered by the wings of God. And now Ruth says, you know what? God's wings may be personified in you. Have you ever done, you ever had anybody say that? Have you ever prayed for something and God said, and, and somebody said, you know what? You have the ability to answer the prayer that you just prayed. Huh? I mean, isn't that true? don't we do that so many times? God will put a need in front of us and we'll be all spiritual and ask God to do something supernatural to meet that need. And at the same time, God's already given us the resources to meet that need. So Ruth is basically calling him out saying, this is your prayer, you can answer that prayer. Whoa, that's pretty bold, isn't it? Look, that's what you can do when you know who you are, when you know what God's Word says, and when you know what needs to be done, when you know all of those things, listen, it's time. It's time to get up and do something about it. So, what do we see the first thing that it was time to do? The first thing in verses 1 through 5, we see it's time to abandon debilitating grief. And boy, I think that's what a lot of us need to do today. Stop mully-grubbing over the past. And start smiling over what God has for us in the future. Huh? Check it out. Second thing, not only is it time to abandon debilitating grief, but it's also time to demonstrate abundant grace. Abundant grace. Hey, when you get time, go through this book and underline every time the word kindness is used. Uh, matter of fact, uh, 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 it's used several times right here within close proximity. Verse 20, 
the Lord has not withheld His kindness. And you know the Hebrew word behind it. It's hesed. It can't be translated by one English word. Grace, loving compassion, tender affection, kindness. My personal favorite is unfailing love. And I think what, what's going on in, in verses 6 through 18 is that we see that it's time to demonstrate abundant grace. And it's almost as if these two, Boaz and Ruth, are trying to outgrace one another. And it's cool. And it all starts because God had graced them. So they're just being good conduits of the grace that God had given them, and here they're gracing everybody else. Man, isn't that cool? So couple that with what the New Testament says to us about grace. Paul tells young Timothy, Be strong in the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying? Let grace be your strong suit. Huh? Peter comes along and says, Grow in grace. So we can see here as these two play out what God's ideal is for the covenant people of God in expressing hesed and grace towards one another really look like. So notice what we find out about this grace. Number one, I think the scripture tells us in verse 10 that grace increases significantly with time. That is the grace that we show to others. Because God has so graced us. Hey, God's given you an overabundance of grace. Did you know that? Hey, you've got enough grace to give it away. <laughs> you've got it. If you've been born again, God has filled you over with abundant grace. So you can be graceful because you've got plenty of it. And look here, if you ever run short, all you have to do is ask and He'll give more grace, James chapter 1 says. Huh? So notice what, 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 Ruth, I mean, what Boaz says here in verse number 11. Excuse me, verse number 10. Then he, that is Boaz, said, May you, Ruth, be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness, hesed, grace. You've shown your last grace to be better than your first grace by not going after young men, whether rich or poor. Now watch this. You see what he's saying? He's saying that grace and the life of a child of God ought to be more graceful and ought to increase with time. I mean, I ought to be showing more grace today than I did last year. Huh? If I'm going to follow this biblical pattern, if I'm indeed becoming strong in the grace of the Lord, if I'm growing in grace of the Lord, and my last grace expression was greater than my first grace expression... So what is Boaz talking about when he says, Bless you, my child, my daughter? Because this act of grace, what act of grace? She was a woman down at the threshing floor at night. What is he talking about? Well, it's a good question. Notice again, let's set it in context. Look what it is that he says. May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last grace or kindness to be better than your first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So what is he talking about? It's a good question. So grace, number one, it increases significantly with time. Number two, grace instructs us to be selfless. And that's what he's talking about. He said what you are doing here is an act of grace in the fact that it's completely selfless. Selfless. You want to know when it's time to do something? 
when you can get self out of the way and you're acting in grace for the benefit of others rather than completely for yourself. That's grace. And Boaz says, that's why your grace has increased since I've known you. Your last act of grace is better than your first act of grace. So what did it do? Well, a couple of things here. Let me point out to you. Grace in your life will turn you away from selfish from selfish obsessions. From selfish obsessions. Now look what he says. I love what Boaz says here. It's so typical male. Look what he says. He says, you know, this act of grace, and he, des- he describes it. This act of grace is better than the first by not going after young men. And do you see, how many of you have, a, have in your version where that word weather is not in there? And the, and the original language is just going after young, poor, or rich. Now let's put this in context, can we? Every indication we have in this story when it talks about Ruth was a very attractive woman. And Boaz says, you know, grace has instructed you well. And you're not going after selfish obsessions. Here's what, here's what he says. You could have had any young man in this town. Now, here's what he's saying in, in, in modern day terms. He's saying, Ruth, you could have very easily been a cougar. You could have went after, you could have had any young man that you want. But you didn't. You know why? Because of grace. Grace will rule you, will, will, will naturally guide you away from natural tendencies. I mean, she could have had the most young Brad Pitt stud in Bethlehem. And he says, by grace, you've come here. And you're looking to your kinsman redeemer. Let me put that in, in Richie translation. You are a hot chick. They ain't nothing that I've got that should attract you to me. So Boaz says, I know it's by grace <laughs> that you are here. Have you ever considered that sometime? Have you ever just looked at some of these old ugly, hairy-legged boys? And I'm telling you, they got a fine woman on their arm and you think, dear God, how'd that happen? <laughs> Let me clear it all up for you. Grace. Grace. <laughs> huh? I mean, how else can you explain Caleb having a savannah in his life? Huh? <laughs> How else can you explain a Richie Allen having a Heather in his life, right? Hun, ain't no other way to explain it. Grace, grace, God's grace. <laughs> That's right. I mean, come on. It had to be grace in Heather's life. Maybe mercy or pity, I don't know. <laughs> Look here, this woman was the hottest chick in our five and our, our 5A high school, she was Miss Harrison Central. She was homecoming queen. She was best dressed. She was hottest mama. She was everything. <laughs> and I was a John Deere tractor, Copenhagen spitting redneck. <laughs> How does that happen? Grace. That's right. So he's saying grace, 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 grace in her life. And he says, that's why this latter grace is better than the first grace that you have shown. Now look, here's how he continues to explain it. You didn't go after the young men. (laughs) 
You didn't go after the poor. Now look, that word's not just referring to those who have no money. It's referring to a class of character. You see, so she, she, Grace allowed her to say no to selfish obsessions. And hey, Ruth is a hot number. She can have any young man she wanted, but Grace forbid her to do that. You know, the second thing is the poor... Here's the people. Watch me. You're going to know, know it when I say it. It's those people that think, oh, all we really need is love. Huh? It don't matter that he's a bum. It doesn't matter that he doesn't have a job. It doesn't matter that he has no motivation or no ambition to make anything out of himself. I love him and all we need is love. Listen, if the grace of God were operative in your life, you wouldn't make that stupid decision, young lady. Huh? You would not. It's those people that reduce love to a second-hand emotion, as Tina Turner says, as if you are like an animal and you can't, you can't control who you love. And I've got good news. You can control who you love. Huh? You can. I remember Heather's daddy told us when we were just young pups, he said, I hear y'all. Y'all think, y'all saying that one can live just as cheaply as, or two can live just as cheap as one because we were so in love and that's all we needed. Her daddy told me, he said, the only way two can live as cheap as one is if one don't eat and the other goes naked. <laughs> to which my reply was, I know which one of us is going to be eating. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so where was I? Is that air conditioner working today? <laughs> Look at here. This is what, here's what Boaz was saying. Ruth was full of grace and that she was more concerned about what God's Word said who her mate should be than who her emotions said her mate should be. Watch me, young ladies. Don't get in that game of emotion. You have a little higher standard when it comes to choosing your mate. Huh? Man, I'm so proud of some of you young ladies. Uh, listen, the day that you see Tiffany Anderson walking in here with an old hairy boy that don't have a job and sits around on the couch playing video games all day, you can know one of two things. Take her to the doctor. She's either had a stroke or hell has frozen over at that very moment. Huh? Tiffany, you know what it is that allows you to have those standards and stick to God's Word as principles for what will establish your relationship? It's the grace of God. Amen. It's not because you're so picky. It's not because you refuse to settle. It's because the grace of God is an operation in your life and it allows you to say no to foolish second-hand emotions and embrace His Word and at the same time embrace His preferred future for your life. Man, I'm so pleased with some of y'all who do that and live by principle rather than preference. By God's Word rather than emotion. Even that. You could find the most qualified man out there. And for some of you, you're still going to have to be graceful. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All right, here we go. Notice what else. How does he define this grace? He said, well, you didn't go after the young, you didn't go after the poor, or you didn't go after the rich. You know, there's a lot of ladies. That's what that's that's, all, that's that's it, huh? I mean, so that answers the question. When you look at some men and you think, "My gosh, you, you, how in the world?" And it's because of a bank account, Daddy. 
Huh? Don't sell yourself out, ladies, for money. You stick to principle. You stick to God's Word. And that's why Boaz says here, he says, Man, the grace that you are showing in this is greater than the grace that you showed at first. Now, what was the grace she showed at first? The grace she showed at first was this. She walked away from her home, her family, her country. She walked away from everything in order to be loyal to her mother-in-law. And Boaz takes that as the standard of comparison and says, No, this last act is even greater than that. Notice what he goes on to say. He says this in verse number 11. He says, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are... You may all want to underline this, this little phrase. They know that you are a woman of excellence. Last week we talked about... Or, or a couple weeks ago we talked about how this book describes Boaz as a Gibor Hail someone of the ruling class, a very noble man. Well, this is the feminine version of Gabor Hail. It's Eset Hail. So you know what's going on here? Let me tell you what happened. The grace of God in operation in her life, grace elevates us through servanthood. It elevates us. Listen, you don't have to be wealthy to be high class. She was a destitute widow... And Boaz looks at her and he says, You are an Aset Hayel. You are a woman of excellence. Now, do you begin to see why there wasn't no hanky-panky going on at that floor, at that threshing floor? Because you had a noble man and you've got a noble woman. You've got a man of high moral character and you've got a woman of excellence. And they weren't down there for hanky-panky. They were down there to take care of business as it relates to the will of God for their lives. And notice, it's amazing. Here Boaz is, the landowner. He refers to a woman who's scavenging in his fields as a woman of excellence. How can he do that? Because the grace of God elevates people. Huh? Here he is, the landowner, talking to a servant, a woman of excellence. The grace of God elevates her. Here he is, an Israelite, talking to somebody from Moab. And he says, you're a woman of excellence. How does he do that? Because the grace of God elevates people. Hey, listen, you want to walk on a little higher plane? Just open yourself up to the grace of God. Grace will elevate you to places that status never can. Grace will elevate you to positions that money never can, that class never can, that education never can. Grace elevates the character of individuals. And son, she's promoted here to a to the class of a woman of ex. She is the elite of the elite in Bethlehem. Wow. Check it out. i got to run. Not only does grace elevate us through servanthood, and check this out. She didn't get this elevation by going into Bethlehem when she came back and rubbing elbows with all the society women. Huh? She didn't. She demonstrated this grace by going out to the field as a scavenger and working to support herself and her mother-in-law. It's amazing. Grace just elevates the status of individuals. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic rung you are on. It doesn't matter what crowd you hang out with. 
The grace of God is at operation in your life. Listen to me. You're a nobleman. And you're a woman of excellence, according to the Bible. Check it out. i got to run. Not only does grace elevate us through servanthood, but grace always defers to Scripture. Check out what Boaz said. Don't you imagine Boaz is probably going crazy about right now. He's beginning to see what all is going on. He's beginning to see that she is willing to walk away from her grief and, and is ready to move on. And look at verse number 12. He says, It is true that I'm a close relative, and this is my responsibility to be a kinsman redeemer. However, there's a relative closer than I am. What you reckon Ruth's heart did at that moment? It probably fell all the way to her left foot, did it not? And Boaz is thinking the same thing. It looks like God has all of this set up. God's worked out the details. He's choreographed it. But wait a minute. There's somebody in line before me. There's a closer relative. So look what it is he says. He says, Remain here this night, and when morning comes, if he will not redeem you good, let, or if he will redeem you good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. What is he saying? He's saying, I'd love to make this happen. But according to Scripture, according to Scripture, what God's Word says, we got to follow the process. Are you following me? We got to follow the process. And that's what a noble man and that's what a woman of excellence does. And I'm telling you, I'm hearing folk today initiate relationships and just throw God's Word right down the toilet. Because we bought into a bunch of Freudian secular ideology as it relates to relationships and psychology. And you hear this on just about every talk show or news channel that you can listen to. Well, if somebody's going to make a lifelong commitment to another partner in life, it's best to have a trial run and move in together. Yeah, that's not what grace does. Because grace always defers to Scripture and follows God's prescribed pathway for those things. You see, grace just doesn't say, oh, I don't have to follow God's Word anymore. We're living in an, in an era of grace. I can do whatever I want. No, grace will never set aside God's Word. No matter how bad you want it, no matter how right it looks, you better stick to the course because this Word is eternal. And he said, let's follow the process, Ruth. There's one that's closer. Grace always defers to Scripture. But let me show you something else that grace does in verse number 14, and I'm hurrying. So she lay at his feet until morning before anyone could recognize another. And look what he said. Let it not be known that a woman came down to the threshing floor. You know what else grace does? Grace avoids even the appearance of sin. You see, not only did they not engage in something sinful, but Boaz was concerned of her reputation and what folk would think of her. Because one and one equals two. You notice how quick folk jump to conclusions? I'm convinced that the only exercise some people get is jumping to conclusions. Huh? And Boaz says, we're not going... I care too much about you. I'm going to protect your character as a woman of, as a woman of excellence... I'm going to protect your, your, your reputation. So you're going to get up and you're going to get out of here before the sun rises before any of these gossiping Baptist friends of mine <laughs> begin to exercise by jumping to conclusions. You see, that's what grace does. Hey, 
Grace doesn't indulge in sin for the fun of it. Grace stays even away from the appearance of sin. Are you following me? Now check it out and I'm done. Not only does grace avoid the appearance of sin, but finally, and I'm going to close this thing down on time, grace acts quickly to resolve situations. You see, and this takes us right back to our original question. When is it time to do something and when is it time to just sit and wait for God? I'll tell you what grace does. Grace doesn't just fold its arms, prop its feet up, and hope for the best. Grace acts quickly to resolve situations. Check this out. Look at verse number, number, number 18. Naomi said this because she knew him to be a man of grace and hesed. We've already seen that. Naomi knew him to be a man of noble character. So look what she says. Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. You see that? Boaz, being a man of grace, he wasn't going to let this situation rock on for days and weeks and months as some of us do. You know what grace does? Grace says, let's get this thing settled right now. But the M.O. of some folk is just to push stuff up under the rug for so dang long until you can't even see over the rug. There's so much garbage under the rug until the rug is a mountain. And we can't even walk across the rug anymore. We've got to walk around the rug because we've got so much baggage underneath the rug. That's not what grace does. Grace will take an issue and it'll hit it head on until that issue is resolved. If not, you get stuck. And if you get stuck, you're not moving on. And if you're not moving on, you're depriving yourself of the future that God has for you by His grace. When is it time to do something? Well, sometimes it's time to get up and leave debilitating grace. And sometimes it's time to get up and demonstrate debilitating grief. And sometimes it's time to get up and demonstrate abundant grace and take care of the situation. I don't know where you are today. don't know what you're coming out of, what you're headed into, or what you're in. But I can say this. It may be time to buy God's grace that He's bestowed upon your, on your life to take action and do something about it for your good and for His glory. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word.